Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Judges. The book of Judges. We're going to be in Judges for a while, so you can just bookmark it once you find it in your Bibles. Judges chapter 4 today. Judges chapter 4 today. Now, um, last week we I was here in body only in some ways. Because we had just finished our long trip to um, Disney World and we were back late the Saturday before last Saturday night. Um, but while we were at Disney World, we, uh, we had one free day. We did all the parks and then we had one free day kind of on the end of it. And we went to see a movie as a family. Now, we didn't know at the time we were going to see uh, the movie that was going to break a record for the most money ever made by an animated movie in history. But we went to the movie because we liked the original. We were interested in the sequel. The movie was Incredibles 2. Now, how many of you have seen at least one of the Incredibles? The first one or how many of you have not seen it at all? Yeah, that's it. All right, good. Now, that was just unnecessarily... The Incredibles, Glenn, let me just do a movie review for you, is an incredibly deep look at parenting through the lens of superheroes that is rewarding for all that had come. All right, so so we went to see Incredibles 2. Now, there's a line in the first Incredibles that came out 14 years ago. That is one of my favorite lines. It's not a real, it's kind of just a throwaway line at the beginning. The story of the Incredibles is that there are superheroes and they're forced to go into hiding because they're causing too much damage when they rescue people. And so they go into hiding and they're interviewing them. And one of the girls, one of the characters' names is Elastigirl. And Elastigirl is asked what it's like being a superhero. And she says, being a superhero is like being a maid. I just get everything cleaned up and they mess it up again. And all of God's parents said, amen, right? That's what it feels like being a parent. Like you get it all fixed and then it's messed up again. I remember a couple of years ago uh, because of various camps and grandmother camps and other things where our kids were away for like two days. Susan and I looked at each other on the second day. It's like, we haven't had to pick up anything like the house stayed clean, right? And so the last girl says that being a superhero is like that, being a maid. You get it all fixed, and then they mess it up again. You know what the book of Judges is like? Being a maid. You get it all cleaned up, and then they mess it up again. We're in the midst of this series called Broken Saviors, and in the midst of this series, we're talking about the book of Judges. We're walking through the book of Judges. We looked at the beginning of Judges. Jeff took you through Samson that's at the end, and then last week, we started kind of this progression through the first part through the Judges. Now, we're going to go pretty quickly from here, hitting just on the big-time Judges that are in there. There are all kinds of minor Judges that are mentioned that we just will not cover over the next few weeks. But the point of the book is that Israel keeps getting itself in a mess. The nation, which at this point is really more a collection of tribes of people that are working together, a a group of states, of colonies, if you will, that are working together, than a united front nation. But they keep finding themselves in difficult situations. And you say, well, why is it called broken saviors? 
Because if you remember that we have this pattern that happens in the book of Judges, where the people of God go after the foreign gods, they leave God, they disobey God, and when they do, God sends a judgment on them. God allows judgment to come or sends it directly. And the people, under the oppression of the judgment for their own sin, cry out to God for a deliverer, and God sends a savior, a judge. Now, most of these judges, and we'll see uh, a kind of a, a weird setting today, a different kind of story, but for the most part, what happens is God sends a singular person who does some military feat that rescues Israel. So last week we looked at the story of Ehud, right? The left-handed judge who killed King Eglon and brought peace on the land for 80 years. We talked even in the midst of that about Shamgar briefly, who killed all those Philistines in the midst of that same time period. But what we see in the book of Judges is that they're broken saviors because the salvation that comes from the human instrument doesn't stick. They're looking for someone to relieve the pressure from them physically, circumstantially, and yet they don't go to God and get spiritually revived. They get rescued, but not restored. And what we see through the book of Judges again and again and again and again, and we'll talk about this more in detail in a few minutes, is that when we depend upon humans and what humans create to save us, it will always leave us wanting. And so the Israelites again and again and again depend on someone to deliver them other than God. And what we see is a progressive deterioration of the land from the beginning of the book of Judges to the end. And we get to Judges chapter 4. We're still towards the beginning. And Judges chapter 4 tells the story of really three deliverers of Israel. Starting in chapter 4 verse 1, the Israelites Again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. So here's what happens. You remember Ehud rules them for 80 years. And in the midst of that, at the end of his reign, the Israelites again do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. There's a repetition to this. This is the exact same phrase used before the, the in chapter 3 when they're describing what's happening. It's the same phrase. They again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them to King Jabin of Cana who reigned in Hazor. Now, the name Jabin is probably a title because in the book of Joshua, Joshua defeats a Jabin, but it's probably like the title of king. It's probably a family dynasty. And so it's like Herod in the New Testament. There are multiple Herods. So this is not the same Jabin probably from Joshua because we're talking about a hundred, more than a hundred years later. But that group of people had the same leader. And as Joshua's people did not completely destroy them, they returned to the place where Joshua had won in Hazor, which was a strategic military post. And he, through alliances, Jabin builds a great network that can oppress people. And the commander of his army was Sisera. We don't know much about Sisera. He plays the major role in this, not Jabin. But what we know about Sisera is that name was not Canaanite, that he was probably a mercenary military leader. 
which meant he was good at what he did, who lived in Harosheth of the nations. Next verse. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord because Jabin had 900 iron chariots and he had harshly oppressed them 20 years. So think about this for a minute. The Israelites do what is wrong. After 80 years of peace, they follow other gods. They go after other places. And after 80 years, God sends Jabin, Sisera, to subdue them. Now, this isn't just any ordinary force. It tells us there they had 900 iron chariots. In this particular day and age, in this time frame, that would be like a country that had just a few pistols going up against a country that's got 900 tanks. These were almost impossible to defeat in their day and time. This was technologically advanced warfare. And they cry out to the Lord because they can't, do you realize this? They get to a place they don't see any other way that they can overcome this foe without God doing something. And... It says he harshly oppressed them for 20 years. For what we can read in history about this particular group of people that would have been in charge of the Israelites, we're not talking about the fact that they made them pay a little extra tax. We're talking about physical force beatings. We're talking about stealing and taking from them, taking their land from them, subduing them, slavery, rape. We're talking about everything that would be unimaginable for us to consider doing to another human being, being done to the Israelites for 20 years. And so the Israelites cried out to the Lord because he had harshly oppressed them 20 years. Next verse. And in marks our first deliverer in the story. Deborah, a prophetess and the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And here's what I want to tell you real quickly about that phrase, judging Israel. It's the only time in this whole passage or in this whole book where it's used in this particular way. Because it tells us immediately after that what judging Israel meant for her. It meant she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to settle disputes. And so she is literally being a... A judge, like we think of. Now, the other judges that we talk about in this book, we call them judges, but they're deliverers, they're saviors. When you think about the other judges in the book, they are not what you would call people that sit and discern disputes. We're talking about Ehud, who stabbed a man in the belly. Samson. Who, I don't know, I mean, you know, you know, we can go back and talk about Samson some more. I don't know that I want Samson determining my disputes. Right? Gideon, who's tentative, Barak, who's tentative, like all these Jephthah who makes rash vows. Wisdom in making decisions isn't necessarily the strength of the other judges. But Deborah is shown as a different kind of judge. She's wise. She's a leader. She's a prophet. 
Now, prophet in that day did not mean, and to this day does not mean as much telling forward the truth, like what's going to happen in the future, but means more telling forth the truth. God says, thus says the Lord. And so when the people of Israel at this time needed a word from the Lord, it came from Deborah. Now, we're going to talk in a few minutes about her significance being a woman in the midst of a male-dominated society, being the leader and why that came about. But I want you to understand that she has a different role than most of the other judges we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. She would settle disputes. Next verse. She summoned Barak, son of Abinam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, Hasn't the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go deploy the troops on Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the Naphtalites and the Zebulonites. So she says, hey, hey, aren't you supposed to go take care of this group? Like, isn't that your responsibility? Then I will lure Sisera, a commander of Jabin's armies, his chariots and his infantry at the Wadi Kashan to fight against you and I'll hand him over to you. Now, that is God speaking there, right? That is not Deborah saying she will lure Sisera. That is God saying, if you go, hasn't Yahweh said to you, take your army and when your army gets there, I will lure Sisera out and I will give him to you. Now, just a quick question. What would Barak's appropriate response have been right then yes let me go get the troops right she says she's a prophet of god and says hasn't god told you this the understanding when you read the original is this is not a new commandment for him this is something he's been told to do and he hasn't done and she says to him hey didn't i tell you this is like when your child comes up the stairs and they have not cleaned their room yet and you say to them hadn't i already told you to clean your room She says, hasn't Yahweh told you to get your people, go down there and fight? And his response should have been, yes, let's go. But he says, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now we're going to stop there for a minute because there are different ways people have interpreted that throughout history. Some people see it in a positive way that Barak says, listen, it's a spiritual thing. It's like Deborah, you are the spiritual mother. Deborah considers herself the mother of Israel. You are the spiritual judge here. You are God's spokesperson here. You are the one that is the spiritual leader of our country. You going, and you remember their day and time, is like the presence of God going with me. And so some see Barak in a way that's like Moses when Moses says, if you will not go with me, I will not go. Others say, no, that's not what's happening. They say he's a little timid, lacks courage, because he knows what he should do. God's already told him he's going to be with him. He doesn't need Deborah. Now, that's all a good debate, right? That's all a fine debate until you read the next verse that tells us whether it's good or bad. Look at the next verse. I will gladly go with you, she said. I'll be glad to do that. You need me to go, I'll go. But, but, you will receive no honor on the road you're about to take because the Lord will sell Sisera to a woman. So does she see it as a positive thing he wants her to go? She says, your glory is going to be taken away. 
You're not going to receive your just rewards. You're not going to receive what you would have if you would have gone under God's command. And she says to him, now you remember, again, we have to put ourselves in the mindset of the judges, not the mindset of a 21st century American. And in the mindset of the judges, a military commander to be told that he is not going to receive the glory for a battle win, but that a woman will was degrading to him. Embarrassing to him. Now, at the, this point of the story, by the way, who does it follow would be the woman that would take his glory? Deborah, right? Let's keep going. Next verse. So Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak summoned Zebulon and Aphali to Kadesh. 10,000 men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. So we've got the battle scene set. They're on the way. Now, Heber, who is Heber? He's a Kenite. Thank you, Dina, right? Had moved away from the Kenites, the son of Habab. I don't know why I think of Ahab now. Y'all seen that? Ahab's changed their name to Ahab. Maybe they should have changed their name to Ahababa. All right. That was free. That wasn't in my notes anywhere. He had moved away from Kenites, the sons of Hobab, Moses' father-in-law, and pitched his tent between the oak tree of Zenanim, which was near Kadesh. Now, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Right? My grandmother used to say, what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? Like, what is that? Some of y'all got that good, all right? What does that have to do with anything? We're talking about Barak and Deborah. Why in the world are we talking about Heber the Kenanite or the Kenite out here pitching his tent in a new location? Well, just hold on to it for a little bit. Next verse. It was reported to Sisera, back to the action, that Barak, son of Abanan, had gone up Mount Tabor. Sisera summoned all his 900 iron chariots. All of them. And all the troops who were with him from Haresh of the nations to the Wadi Kishon. So he's not taking this lightly, right? Then Deborah said to Barak, go. This is the day the Lord has handed Sisera over to you. Hasn't the Lord gone before you? So Barak came down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following. So get this picture. There's a wadi. You know what a wadi is? It's a, a riverbed. It's the dry season. And so the riverbed doesn't have any water in it. The chariots are coming this way. They're coming this way. You've got 900 chariots and all the men following behind. And you've got 10,000 coming down this side. The Lord. Who? The Lord, through Sisera, all of his charioteers... And all of his army into a panic before Barak's assault. Now, how did he do that? Well, we're not going to get to chapter 5 a lot today. But chapter 5 is the victory song of Deborah about what happened. And in that we find out he flooded the river valley. With a thunderstorm in the dry season, it would be like it's snowing outside today. And when they got into the river valley, where all the water's going to rush to, a thunderstorm comes up, a torrential downpour comes up, and guess what happens to heavy iron chariots on the ground when the floods come? They get stuck. And your biggest advantage is suddenly not able to be used. The Lord threw them into a panic. 
And so Sisera jumps out and flees. Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosh of the nation and the whole army. How much of the army? The whole army of Sisera fell by the sword. Now notice, one of the things I love about God, Barak asked God, tests God by saying, Deborah, come with me. But God doesn't take away the victory from his people because of Barak's lack of faith. He gives victory to the people, right? Not a single man was left except for Sisera. Meanwhile, Sisera had fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of who? So what's that little tidbit about? Oh, it's that God is establishing him in exactly the right spot. Because there was a peace between King Jabin of Hazor and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to greet Sisera and said to him, come in, my Lord, come in with me. Don't be afraid. So he goes into friendly territory to what he thinks will be a friendly tent. And he gets there and she says, come in and sit down. And he does. Next verse. So he went into her tent and she covered him with a blanket. She said, he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. She does better than the water. She's really laying it on here, isn't she? She covers him up. She takes care of him. She opened a container of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him again. A container of milk would not have been ice cold milk. It would have been a kind of warm milk. Now let me ask you a question. What do you use warm milk for? To go to sleep a little better, right? Now why is she going to want him to sleep? Well, she's got a little business to do. Then he said to her, stand at the entrance of the tent. If a man comes and asks you, is there a man here? Say no. He's worried about what's outside. He should have been worried about what was inside. There's a whole other sermon there we're not going to get to today. While he was sleeping from exhaustion. This is where the story gets a little gruesome. Just should have warned you before we put that slide up, right? Heber's wife, Jael, took a tent peg, grabbed a hammer, went silently to Sisera, and she hammered the peg into his temple and drove it into the ground, And I don't really think that last three words are necessary. Amen. And he died. When Barak arrived in pursuit of Sisera, Jael went out to greet him and said, you looking for somebody? The man that you want's right in here. And so she went in with her. He went in with her. And there was Sisera lying dead with a tent peg through his temple. Notice that exclamation point there, right? That is an exclamation point moment. When you're pursuing your enemy and you walk in and there he lies with a tent peg through his temple. You're going to exclaim something. That day, God subdued King Jabin. Jabin's not in the story at all, right? But his warrior and his men are. The power of the Israelites continued to increase the king, King Jabin of Cana until they destroyed him. You know what I love about the story? It's well written. Right? I mean, you have the whole front part where Deborah and Barak are talking and Deborah says, go do it. And Barak says, hey, I, I, I need you to go with me. She goes, that's fine, but a woman's going to get the glory. And immediately you think it's Deborah. 
Then you have this little tidbit about Heber, and you're like, what's going on there? It's just foreshadowing. It's a beautiful foreshadowing in a short story. And then what happens is the whole battle plays out, and you think, well, look at there. God gave him victory, and into the arms of the woman who will receive the glory walks the enemy. And in the midst of it all, God delivers his people. So here's what I want to do with the time we have remaining, which to my estimation is about an hour and a half. We have, I I, I didn't get that right. All right. I want to think five things that we see from this passage that I want us to think about in our own lives. Okay. And I know it's hard. How do we, how in the world do we come up with a story about a woman driving a tent peg through a man's temple and a female judge giving advice to a man who's not going to receive the glory? What does that all mean for us? And here's the first thing I want us to see. In this passage, it teaches us again and again and again throughout the book of Judges is we need a savior. Notice the cycle of sinning there in verse one. The Israelites again, it's the same routine. It's the same thing over and over and over again. A commentator named Wilcox says that Judges portrays the wickedness of Israel as desperately unoriginal. I love that. Desperately unoriginal. It's the same sin again and again and again and again. They chase after the gods of foreign lands. They refuse to follow the ways of Yahweh, their God. And as a result, again and again and again, they find themselves in the same rut, the same sin. And it says there, the only thing that's different about the sin of Israel, it is, I love that phrase, desperately unoriginal, is it just gets worse. Now he also says at the end of that, and we'll see this, we saw that in this passage, is and while Israel is completely unoriginal, God is original in every way He delivers them. He doesn't deliver them the same way twice. What we see in this passage is that sin is a routine. It promises us things that it does not deliver. It's a boring routine. One commentator said that oftentimes sin is a fast lane that becomes a rut. Like it promises us freedom and excitement, but it leads to slavery and staleness again and again. Notice that in this passage that it is tied to the fact that Ehud had died. So Ehud had led them. Ehud had had been their leader. And while Ehud was alive, he allowed them to follow God because he gave some restraint to the work that they did, to the way that they lived. The external restraint is removed And they go back to being who they truly are. Sometimes when you um, do a study of the book of Judges or you read through the book of Judges, sometimes people will take the book of Judges and compare it to the United States of America and what is happening in our country. And here's what I would say to that. A, United States of America, while I am proud to be a part of this country, love being a part of this country, according to Scripture, is not the new Israel. That is the church of Jesus Christ. Now, our principles that we can take from this that help us to see some things, and I can tell you a principle that I see in this passage that helps to explain some of what's happening in our country even today. And that is, for many, many years, there was an external restraint of an understood Judeo-Christian moral value system that was laid over the top of our country, and it acted as an external restraint that kept people from doing what their heart desired to do. And what has happened in the last 20, 30, 
30, 40 years is that external Judeo-Christian moral value system restraint has been gradually removed. And now it's not that people are worse than they used to be. They're just acting on what was already in their hearts without external restraint to keep them from doing it. The issue has always been the sin in our hearts. The sin has always been inside. I joked a minute ago and said there's a whole lesson about being worried about what's on the outside when you should be concerned about what's on the inside of the tent. But the reality is the church of Jesus Christ ought to be concerned about what the real character of our heart is. There are people in our churches. There are people in our lives. There are our own individuals, our own selves understand that there are things that we do not act upon within our heart because of the external restraints that we know are in place in our lives. But that when you dig down deep to the inside of who we are, we are a sinful, corrupt people who need a Savior. And notice, for those of us that are believers in this room, this is true for us today as it was when we accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. We didn't need a Savior then. We need a Savior now. He is consistently changing us into the people that we want to be. But left to our own devices, we are a people who will go back to the places where we are living in accordance to our own flesh and our own desires instead of the wills of God. I've been reading a book off and on over the last um, year called Irresistible. Um, I'm reading it because I'm interested in this whole phenomenon that... People, scientists, researchers today understand addiction and habit better than they ever have. Through scientific study, through looking at brain waves, they understand that better than they ever have. And this book, Irresistible, specifically is talking about how that um, game developers and technology people that are creating the products and the services that we use understand addiction and are building into their machines and into their games and into their apps things that will trigger addiction in people. And so I was reading this and it's this, one of the things they talk about that leads to habit or addiction forming is the environment in which we live. Now, there's a story in there of a guy named Isaac Weisberg, and I won't give you the full story, but just to let you know, he was a guy that knocked the top off of the SATs, went to an Ivy League school, and was doing really well for the first part of his time in school until he got addicted to an online multiplayer game. And he would spend a couple of weeks in his apartment without leaving. I don't know if you've seen, but the World Health Organization this week just made... Um, uh, gaming addiction, a mental health disorder. This guy went to a treatment center that treats, some of you probably didn't even know they had such a place, that treats people that are addicted to games. And he left there and said that when he left the facility, they said the one thing you can't do is go back to where you came from. Because what they have found is when you get back to where you were, the triggers are there and the addiction will sprout up again. So don't go back to the same house. Don't go back to the same place. Don't go back to the same school. But he said, I was determined I could fight it on my own. And he went back to the same school, lived in a different house and went to school, did fine for about four months. And then he went on a month long binge. He didn't leave his house for a month. He didn't shower for a month. 
And they asked him at the end what happened. And he said, I never realized how easy it is to slip back into who I was. The Israelites kept going back to where they were. Their leadership leaves and they find themselves in a place desperate for a savior. And lest we stand in judgment on the Israelites, when we look into the depths of our own soul, what we will discover is if we are not floored by the own ability we have to sin, then we have misunderstood what Scripture teaches about the sin nature we have. We need a Savior. Second thing we see in this passage. Play your role and don't be a spectator. Play your role. Now, I want, to, I want you to look over. If you've got your Bibles open, this won't be on the screen. Um, but if you've got your Bibles open, look over to chapter 5, verse 1. And I love what happens here. Chapter 5 is Deborah's song. You can go back and read the whole thing. It's great. Deborah talks about the victory that was brought to them by God. But chapter 5, verse 1 says, On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinadam, sang, when the leaders lead in Israel and when the people volunteer, blessed be the Lord. The point that is being made here by Deborah is God brought about this victory, but his people did what they were supposed to do. Play your role. Do what God's called you to do. Now, I want to start talking about the three people that are the deliverers in this passage. And I want to start with Deborah. And what it tells us about Deborah here is that she is a prophet, that she is wise, that she is respected, that she is a leader. Now, there are all kinds of discussions because in that day and time, Deborah leading the people of Israel would not have been the norm. In fact, other nations would have scoffed at Israel for having Deborah in a leadership position according to their own law. But what it teaches us here, and there are people that say, well, it's just because there wasn't a good enough man around at the moment, or the male leadership was lacking. We don't have any indication of that in Scripture. In fact, in Scripture, the only thing that we have about Deborah is that she was the right woman for the job at the time to lead God's people as a judge determining, determining their disputes. And so one of the things that we see out of this passage, and it's probably the passage in Scripture that teaches this as well as any other, is that God gives to women the same spiritual gifts as men. There is no class system when it comes to God's looking at men and women. God uses women, gives them the same spiritual gifts. Now that's been some discussion in our country in recent days, specifically about the Southern Baptist Convention. Like, how do we interpret that in the light of our churches? Here's what I'll tell you. I see no evidence in Scripture that God gives men certain gifts and women different ones. Or that God expects men to learn certain things and women others. What I see in Scripture is that when it comes to the cross, that we are equal in the sight of God when it comes to our understanding of who he is and what he's done for us. Now, saying that, I will also say that the Old Testament and New Testament also has a couple of roles that are reserved for men that no woman fills. The role of priest in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, the, uh, the role of senior pastor or elder. 
It's the way God's established things. Now, here's what I would say to that. If you read the Old Testament, if you read the New Testament, today some people look at that and they think they are restrictive towards women. But in their day and time, in their age, what it says about women would have been some of the most liberating things you could imagine for women in their day. And what Scripture teaches us is that women have all the spiritual gifts that men have and they are called to lead and exhibit those gifts to the fullest that they are capable of demonstrating them. God has a calling of both men and women. God has given spiritual authority to both men and women. And our job is to figure out the role God has for us to play in this and to do it. You know what I love about Deborah? Deborah is often seen as the hero of this story. And I don't have any doubt about the fact that she is a leader. We'll talk about why I don't want to call her the hero of the story in a few minutes. But here's what I would say. All Deborah does in the story is encourage. Right? Y'all look like you're hesitant to say anything on that. Right? She, she encourages. She says, Barack, hadn't God told you to do that? She's a prophet. She's a, she's judging people. She says, hey, go. She doesn't drive the stake through the guy's head. She doesn't fight the battle. She stands and says, go. It's time to go. Go. She's the encourager. She plays her role. She is the one that deciphers the disputes of the people. She is the one that prophesies what God is speaking at the moment. She encourages other people to do their role. She doesn't try to do it all, but she does the role God has called her to. Even Barak, even though he's hesitant at the beginning, Barak accomplishes the purpose God called him to accomplish, right? Except perhaps because of his hesitancy, getting the opportunity to kill Sisera himself. You know what's interesting? One of these three people, Deborah, Barak, and Jael, have mentioned in the famous hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. You know who it is? It's Barak. Now, in this story, let me just ask you a question. What would you say is lacking in Barak? Faith. Right? He doubts God. He asks Deborah to go with him. And yet, when you get to chapter 11 of Hebrews, and it's listing those who had faith, it says, and not to mention, Gideon and Barak. How God redeemed him. In that initial Lack of faith turns into a complete faith in God. He fulfilled his part. Jael. Here's the thing about her. A, she was exactly where God had placed her. And we talked about that. The minutia of the salvation. God puts her there. But do you know what, what her primary task would have probably been in that community? She would have been the one that put the tents up. Because that's what women did in their day. She would have been the tent raiser. So her taking the tent stake and driving it would have been something she did multiple times in her lifetime. This is not something where she's just looking around for anything. She was skilled as anyone in that area with it. She used a common everyday household item for her to destroy the most powerful general in the army. She played her role. Now a part of that means that we are to do what God calls us to do. And it means we can't be spectators. 
In fact, and you don't, you don't have, if you don't have your Bibles open, you don't have to turn there, but if you do, you can just look over in chapter 5, verse 23. Because in the midst of this, uh, Deborah is giving praise to all the people that are part of this. She'll praise Jael, she'll praise, um, the, the Shamgar and all that. She'll praise the people that came and helped, the princes and all of that. But in chapter 5, verse 23, she says, curse Miraz, says the angel of the Lord. Bitterly curse her inhabitants. Why? For they sat on the sidelines and did not come and help when the Lord needed warriors. There's more than one way to be evil or wrong when it comes before the Lord. And one of those ways is to sit back and just enjoy and not be a part of what God's called us as a family to do. Now, I'm not talking about a single local church here, although I think the application is there. I'm talking about in general, that when you sit on the sidelines and you let other people take charge, you're disobeying God. When God's called us to do something and we don't do it, we're spectators. What we discover is we are disobeying our Lord. Now, I want to talk to the men for a second about this. Because men, if you look at some of the statistics out there, more and more men are falling away from their responsibilities in following the Lord. I saw this statistic this week and it just blows me away. And I'm proud of our females doing this. But according to the IMB recently, female applicants at the IMB are now four to one to men applicants. Four females applied to go to the International Mission Board for every one male. And we talked last week a little bit about this on Father's Day, the importance of men leading. If in a family the first to convert to Christianity is a child, there is a 3.5% chance that the whole family will come to Christ. If in a family the mother is the first one to come to Christ, there is a 17% chance that the whole family will come to Christ. If the first to come to Christ is the father, there is a 93% chance the whole family will come to Christ. Men, we need you involved. We need you doing what God's called you to do for your family, for your church, for your community. But we need all of us. Notice here, it's not just that they miss out on the blessing. Verse 23 says that God curses them because they did not get involved. Not say this to you as, pa- as your pastor. Don't come and just sit in Sunday school and service. Find ways you can actively be engaged and involved in the church in serving. Over the last uh, few months, we've been involved in a new a ministry here at the church, a guest service. And if you talk to anybody that's a guest that's come, or even some of you have talked to me about how nice it is to have people in the parking lot, how nice it is to people have people out there greeting. We've, we've had a couple of incidents in parking lots over the last few weeks that having people out there was vital to us being able to do what we needed to do in that moment. We're a church that on average has 400 people here every Sunday. Okay? Now, some Sundays, like last Sunday, everybody decided to go somewhere else. All right? If you look at the numbers for last Sunday, it's the worst we've had in two years. All right? Some Sundays you'll look and we'll have much more than that. But on average, somewhere between 375 and 400 people. And every Sunday, to make that all run, we need 10 to 15 people out of 400. And every week I get an email And we always have about five, six. We need some of you to step up and be a part of that. 
not necessarily in the parking lot, inside, work in different areas. We just need some help with that. See Terry York, talk to the church office. Don't be a spectator. So you say, well, I, I wasn't a spectator, but I'm, you know, I'm past that. You know, you never retire from church work. You realize that, right? Y'all didn't get a very big amen on that. I got like half of amen from somebody. You know how long you're supposed to do church work? As long as you're here. If you're here, you're supposed to be doing something. Okay? I know some of you, well, it's time for the younger people to take it. Well, younger people are, and I'm going to get on them in the second service. Those younger ones that come around. Okay? But don't be a spectator yourself. I want to be used up when I'm done. I don't leave anything behind. I'm reading a book right now by a guy named uh, Erwin McManus. It's called The Last Arrow. And Erwin McManus is a pastor out in California. And uh, he was diagnosed with cancer and was not given much of a chance to live. Erwin has built a great church right on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles. And he wrote a book about how he was going to spend the rest of his life using his very last arrow. Now, since then, he's been given reprieve. And God has healed him. But the principle's the same. Third thing. We got five of these to get there. Let's go. Third thing. Complete obedience leads to God's best. Barak's unwillingness to go and fight, even though he has assurance, is serious. Reluctance to believe God's promise is a serious thing. They say, Barak, hasn't God said to you go? And he says, well, go with me. God in his goodness is constantly looking for opportunities to give good gifts to men and women. Yet we forfeit those gifts when we choose to live with a lack of faith or ask God for assurances. I believe that we lose opportunities to be truly used by God. And when we fail to trust God and demand assurance when he has already spoken, we lose out on opportunities to be used in a mighty way by him. Most of us simply don't trust what he's already told us to be true. Sometimes when you talk about Barak here, people say, well, is he the hero of the story? Is Deborah the hero of the story? Is Jael the hero of the story? And the truth is, when we look at Judges chapter 4, more than any other story in the book of Judges, when it gives us three different people that are deliverers of Israel, we realize that none of them are the hero of the story because, number four, God is always the hero. The hero of this story is Yahweh. Look at verse 6 and 7. She summoned him and says, Hasn't the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Verse 14. Then Deborah said to Barak, This is the day of the Lord. Hasn't the Lord gone before you? Verse 15. The Lord, through Sisera, all his charioters, and all the army into panic before them. Verse 23. That day God subdued Jabin. Of Canaan before the Israelites. God is the warrior who fights for Israel and for us. He is always the hero of the story. He is always the one who deserves the glory. He is always the one that is the rightful claim to hero. He orchestrates the whole thing. 
He sends a man to live in a certain spot where he knows Sisera is going to flee after he gets them into the valley that is dry and sends a thunderstorm at the wrong time of year in order to flood that particular place so his iron chariots won't work and God will deliver the Israelites from it. So when he flees from it, he's going to find a woman that's really good with a tent peg and a hammer and they're going to take care of Sisera. And before somebody gets really griefed out about, is he condoning murder here? What I would say to you is it was the continuation of a battle and if you knew what Sisera had done to the people of Israel, his death was not a tragic thing. In fact, if you look at the song of Deborah, she says that his mom is waiting on him to come home and one of his attendants says, oh, you know he's going to be a while. There's lots of things for them to steal from the Israelites and there are lots of women for them to take. God orchestrated the whole thing. He is and is always the hero. And here's the last thing and then we're done. When God gives you victory, celebrate victory. Chapter 5 is a beautiful song of praise. Praising Yahweh for all that he has done, for those that participated, and for the victory that has come. And in our lives, when God moves, we celebrate. In our lives, when we remember what God has done for us, we celebrate. I've always thought that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's kind of interesting. Because of all the things we do as a church, perhaps the most somber thing we do is the Lord's Supper, right? Right? We do it in remembrance of the Lord. Now understand why it's somber. I mean, we're talking about the death of our Savior. We're talking about all that happened there. But, and sometimes I wonder if it wouldn't be just as appropriate to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because it was through His blood that we gained victory. And we rejoice in the victory. When Deborah sang that song, do you know that in that song, it's a raucous song? Most commentators feel that when she gets to the part where Jael hammers Sisera, that the cadence of it is that of literally a hammer hitting with the vowel sounds and all that's happening, that they are celebrating that moment. And while it creeps us out for them, it was a glorious moment of victory and they celebrated. When's the last time you celebrated the Lord? I mean, overjoyed, excited. When's the last time you celebrated the victory you have in Jesus? Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. You love me. Don't you love that song? When God delivers, we celebrate. Let's pray together.